Hello, I'm Llewellyn King, the host of White House Chronicle. Thank you for coming along. My guest today is Eric Listo. He is the co-founder of the Living in Place Institute based in Louisville, Colorado, which is in the mountains, very beautiful. Uh, we have in common a profound interest in people like my father who work with their hands and who feel they are often misunderstood or underrated by society. Both of us have in the past railed against what I have called the mortarboard ceiling, uh, which might also be called oppression by the four-year college row in our value system. Does that sound fair, Eric? That sounds very fair. Let's, let's, let's change everyone's thinking today. Well, Rock, I'm not sure we'll do that. I've been at this many a year, and I'm not sure how many people's thinking I've changed. But anyway, it's interesting to air these things. Thank you for coming on the broadcast. Uh, you might as well tell us right out what the Living in Place Institute is. Good. Well, first of all, thank you, Llewellyn. Thank you for having me here, and thank you for everybody that's watching. The Living in Place Institute is an organization that provides education for the building industry. Everything from the tradesperson to the designer, to the builder, to the finance, and the medical professionals. Our vision is that all homes be safe, healthy, comfortable. So we provide the education to the industry to learn how to make all homes safer and better for everyone, no matter what your age. And uh, uh, how long have you been doing this? You don't just up one day and say, I'm going to start an institute and all these people are going to listen to me, do what I want to do and send me money to do it with. How did I this thought, get going? I thought that's how it was going to work, Llewellyn. But we actually started about six years ago. My business partner approached me. He was already a nationally known child safety expert. I was already a senior housing expert. He approached me to write a book on senior safety. I said, sure, let's do that. Well, the concept quickly developed and grew to the reality of the industry just needs to learn how to do a better job and a safer job. So it's now, we're now going into our seventh year and we now literally have a global reach. And you issue uh, certificates, recognition of people, builders who build safe homes, safe inside the home, safe ways of doing, don't fall on sharp objects, don't trip over loose carpets, that kind of thing. That's absolutely right. We have credentials for three different, three different areas within the housing industry. So we provide the credentials, the wherewithal, and to the point today, helping especially those trades professionals learn more of the value they have and to increase consumer understanding of their importance and their value. And what kinds of things? Take us into a home. Uh, okay. Tell us what makes a safe home, what makes an unsafe home, or a less safe home. Great question. Well, I always start out by thinking, well, walking up to the house. Do I have steps to walk on? I shouldn't. I should have a walkway. Is there no threshold in the front door? Not even a little step. It's all achievable. Once you open the door, hopefully that's a great big wide door. Lighting that comes on automatically, uh, no tripping hazards, like you mentioned, no throw rugs in a home, uh, a lot of attention. We've identified, if you went through a house and used our assessment tool, you'd identify about 600 different questions in the home that you want to try to make the home better. 
every time someone touches a home as a professional, leave it a little bit nicer than it was, a little safer. And uh, is this expensive? I mean, does it cost a lot of money to, to make a home safe? Actually, that's a really good question, Llewellyn. Everyone thinks it does, but it doesn't. I'll give you an example of a shower. Traditionally, showers have that big step walking into it. Now you can build a shower with no step using, and different manufacturers make different kits. The kit costs money, but because it can go in quicker, you can actually build a shower safer, faster, for less money now than we could in the past. And uh, what about those bars? When I go to a hotel, they always seem to put the bar in the shower, if there is one, in a place designed for people who not like me. They either not right-handed or left-handed or something. They never seem to be in a convenient place. Sometimes you have to contort yourself in order to hold on to the bar, which you know rather negates its purpose. You're absolutely right. And I've tested many of those bars in hotels, just gone in and, and hung on to them. I don't think many of them have been installed properly. So we teach the industry, and I'll just use you as an example, Llewellyn. Instead of me saying, Llewellyn, a man your age, I don't need to say that. Instead, I just have a chat, and let me ask you, Llewellyn, do you have friends or family that may come to visit you? Maybe some of them have some, some challenges, and if so, let's just make your shower better. In fact, Llewellyn, let's put a nice towel bar in your shower so you can hang a wet washcloth. Isn't that a good idea? And I shake my head yes, and you say yes. Well, I've just put a what we used to call a grab bar in your shower. Who subscribes to your institute? Who takes your courses? Uh, and uh, um, how, how do you teach them this? The courses are everything from the designer, the contractor, the architect, the financial lenders, the real estate agents. <clears throat> We've also included the occupational and physical therapists because they are vital to understanding what the individuals need specifically. Do you, uh, do you issue the equivalent of a good housekeeping seal of approval? I mean, uh, something similar to that. What we have is a recognition program that we'll be launching this year. So someone who builds even a remodeled kitchen or a new home can say, yes, this has meet a standard by the Living in Place Institute and is safer for your whole family. Now let's go to the other subject, we get off what you do, and uh, what we both believe in, which is a lack of recognition for people who work with their hands, uh, a lack of societal uh, uh, respect for people who work with their hands, because in my view, we have this four-year college domination of our society, that if you didn't go to college, you must be stupid or less or somehow an inferior person you know, designated forever to be hourly paid, not, not salaried, and to uh, uh, be the first fired and the last hired. Right, uh, and the one without everybody, insurance. Everybody <laughs> just goes mad if they find a good painter or a good plumber, a good <laughs> automobile mechanic. Uh, and they treasure these people. They won't even tell their friends who they are for fear that they won't be available. Uh, how has this come about, and how did you get interested in the plight of the artisan? 
Well, we know that that artisan, the people that I say, every day they bring designs to life. No matter how well somebody designs something or what products, it's that person, that very, very gifted, talented person, man or woman, in the home that puts it together. My journey, Llewellyn, I, um, I went to college in the late 60s. I only went to college a couple years because it was an interesting time in our society. And I felt a little disappointed in the educational system that said, you go to school four years, six years, eight years, you have all this enormous debt, and good luck to you. Well, I left school, and someone said, why don't you become an electrician? And I thought, well, how hard can that be? You just put in light bulbs. So I went out, and I took a job. I went through the four-year apprenticeship program. I became a licensed electrician. And one of the most important things I learned was watching the crews, all the, all the agony they went through at times physically, all the head scratching, building something. When the job is done, everyone stands there and looks at it and goes, well, nice building. You know, it's a building. They have no idea of the talent, the expertise that it took to actually do that by a team of people that like to work with their hands. They like to create that something. So at the end of the day, they say, I like that. That looks good. It's just have, that have you got, Eric, do you have in mind some way we can fix this imbalance in our society? Well, it's an interesting problem. We've always had the problem. We will never have enough tradespeople. Everybody wants something done in their home, so you just physically can't have enough persons. Like you said, when you find that tradesperson who's good, you, you covet them. You don't want to tell other people. I think the first thing we can do, and there's a lot of efforts now, encourage young people to consider becoming a trades professional. But I think the real answer, Llewellyn, is to address the current. There's about 7 million trades professionals in the U.S. alone. Why don't we acknowledge them? Why don't we give them that big pat on the back? And in our case, why don't we give them some education to help them fit in with the rest of them? Why don't we give them a credential? Why don't we give them something that they can be proud of and say, yes, I'm here to help you and your family in your home. And I do it by being an electrician, a plumber, a painter, a drywall. doesn't matter what they're doing. They, everyone is vitally important to that end result of just helping the families. Well, I would point out that if you work with your hands in any one of these things, stone cutting, blacksmithing, it doesn't matter what, uh, you have the chance of starting your own business. Mm -hmm. Come out of a four-year college. Most people who come out of four-year colleges have no possibility of starting their own businesses because they don't have a skill that they can sell easily. If you're right. an electrician, you have a skill you can sell, you can start doing contract work, and next thing you're employing a few electricians and you are in business, mm -hmm. some of which become very big. But in your case, if you've uh, had stayed in college and gotten a BA in I don't know what, sociology, history, a uh, little different if you're computer science, but if, if one of these soft uh, uh, like journalism, soft uh, trades or soft mm -hmm. uh, areas of study, you can't go out and start a history boutique or a 
buy a truck and put sociology on the side and <laughs> go around offering your services to anybody who might want them because nobody would want them. Uh, I think that if we emphasize that the way to self-employment, to self-satisfaction and to self-improvement financially and ultimately socially is through owning a business. I've always thought it was the highest calling somebody could have. And my father who was a mechanic and was always self-employed at being a mechanic, mm -hmm. um, uh, made a living at it. He never got rich, sometimes employed two or three people, but it gave him a satisfaction, a sense of worthwhileness that was very important. And I think that a lot of people are lacking that when they have to apply to work in a great corporation and become a cog in the wheel. Mm -hmm. And the only way I can see to do a startup without being, you know, a computer scientist in Silicon Valley is, in fact, having a trade that is in demand. Mm -hmm. That's right. Day, what, day well, one. How, how day one, you you're go, in business. How did you go after that? After you left college, after you did the apprenticeship, uh, how did you get into business for yourself? Well, at first, I worked for a company. And... And I think a lot of companies will hire you and pay for your education. So I didn't have to pay anything for four years of night school to become an electrician. And it's amazing what I had to learn. People think it was just hooking up lights. No, it, it, it included everything from understanding what energy is, how it comes from the sun, how it comes to our house, how we use it in the house, and what is available. So I started branching out. I worked in the commercial field for a while. Then when I moved to Colorado, somebody asked uh, my new wife, can Eric paint a wall? And I said, sure, anybody can do that. Well, I painted the wall, got done and realized, no, that's a lot more skilled. So what if I just hire a painter to paint a wall? And what I learned was some of those painters and other trades people, they don't want to contract the work. They just want to do the work. So I quickly went from zero, the beginning of the month, to about $8,000 in business by the end of the month. And I was stunned how quickly that happened. And that first client said, well, can you do this in the house? Can you put in new ceramic tile? Yes. So I went to the supply house and I asked the guys there, hey, anybody want a job doing tile work? And how long have you been doing it? I brought tradespeople in. I learned to manage them. But I think a lot of my, my plus was that I knew at least what they were doing. I wasn't as good as, as them. It would take me much longer to put in a shower than a tradesperson because I'm not actively doing it. But it allowed me to create a business and thrive and prosper, take care of my workers, provide them with education, with benefits. And most of them didn't know that existed. You know, They didn't know they could get sick leave and have insurances. I always insisted on, no, you're a qualified Professional, let me treat you with the highest respect. What about apprenticeships? Do you believe in them? It work I do. for you, or do you think that they are too long, or that they are too abused by employers? Well, you can you can never stop learning. <laughs> I, that's one of the things in my fifty plus years of building, I learn something continually. So programs are wonderful. You can't learn it on your own. You can't, you know, whether it's building a house or fixing a car, 
You can't just go figure that out on your own. First of all, you have to have that, that innate desire to work with your hands and to accomplish something. Then you need the education. And now, thanks to the Internet, education is so much easier. A lot of our courses we provide online. So people can grab this education, learn more, and then go share it with others. Because that's one of the great things about tradespeople. Every project I've been on, every tradesperson is looking at the other one saying, what do you think of this? How could I make this better? What do you think of this? Everyone gives their input. The end result is quite amazing. Um, tell me, what do you think about retraining? Retraining seems to me to be a much tougher undertaking than training a young person in a particular skill? Well, yeah, that's, that's another good question, Llewellyn. A young person may be more apt to, I need to learn what to do in life, but I think the same holds true no matter what your age. Whether you're my age, whether you're someone much younger, you still want to learn. You still want to attack new ideas and new principles so I don't think advanced and continuing education is wrong. I think it's necessary, especially when the world changes so quickly. When I was young, and an old Volkswagen beat up car. I could fix it. There wasn't much to it. Now I open the hood of a car, and I have absolutely no idea what I'm looking at. I just take it to the mechanic. I let them fix it. They're the, they're the experts. And so you think that you can, I, I'm a little dubious about whether retraining isn't a sort of political sop and whether it isn't a lot more difficult to take someone, say, in their 40s or 50s and try to teach them a new skill. I, I suspect that's a lot more difficult. And there may be some innate resistance to the change anyway. Well, there's always resistance to change. But... You know, if, if what you just said holds true, then older people wouldn't be using telephones and computers. We all learn these concepts. One of my favorite little cartoons was a young man and an older gentleman holding a cell phone. And the older gentleman said, who do you think invented that? I like that. That's very nice. But uh, the fact is, you know, we do have a digital divide on age. Uh, I had a friend who was a scientist, a very brilliant scientist, uh, in the, uh, physicist, and yet he never really got on top of his email. It just was something that he couldn't get interested in or excited about, and it frustrated him, whereas he had done very elaborate uh, computations uh, for, for in physics. Uh, and it struck me that this was maybe a bridge too far for him. At some point, learning a new skill becomes a lot harder because you're older. Um, it can. You know, as we age, our speed of cognitive processing slows down a bit. But that doesn't mean, you, you know, you, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Yes, you can. It's just, is your desire there? Is that really what you want to do? I think I think part of the reticence of people wanting to learn something new is maybe that's really not what you really want to do. Maybe it's something that others have encouraged you to do. You just need to sort of search around and figure out what it is you like to do. What is the magic of four years, Eric? Four years in college, four-year apprenticeships, four years. Uh, um, a lot of things, journalism, for one, I don't think needs four years to get going. 
you need maybe a, 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 some instruction and then some actual experience and you need to fall down quite often. Well, but, I think uh, our, our entire educational system, we need to revisit. As you said, why is it magically four years? Could it be three years? Does it need to be four and a half years? I think we need to revisit, not by system, educational system, but perhaps by individual dictum. If a person wants to take on a new project or a new challenge in their life, how long does it take to learn that? Granted, it takes a lifetime to be great at it, but maybe it doesn't take four years. Maybe we need to revisit those, those stayed books that say four years. In looking to, we're going to have to do a lot of retraining. As we come out of the pandemic, there are going to be people whose jobs have evaporated and are not coming back in, in a year or two years, um, just not coming back. Maybe for 10 or 20 years, jobs in restaurants, jobs in hotels, service jobs generally, some jobs in theaters, etc. A lot of people are going to have to learn how to earn a living at something else. What do you see as the role of government here? <clears throat> the role of government? I think the role of government is to literally govern, to look, provide. I don't have an issue with the government taking a long time to affect change. That allows it to be a fair and equitable process. I've been involved in my community on on a number of changes in the building environment within the community, and I've seen it take a while. I think the government has the responsibility to listen to the workers, what they're doing. I won't go into it right now, but I just learned of a new <clears throat> electrical code requirement, which is a problem. It's, it's, it's not the right thing to do. It will actually cause a lot of hardships in people's homes. This is a code that comes from the federal government or well, the, the, the codes come from private organizations that, that establish standards, then it goes from federal down to state, down to local municipality. So the local municipality, if we're talking of building, with my background here, you can imagine a, building a house is different than building one in Florida. So the government just needs to address and listen to the practitioners on what the best practices are. Building is very regional. You just touched on it, isn't it? Yes, yes, and, it is. Very. And very conservative. We tend to build in New England a certain kind of house, and in the Pacific, <laughs> in the in the uh, Southwest, a different kind of house, and in Florida, another kind of house. And yet, there are things in all of those houses that should be common, and they should be a commonality in materials, etc. And we really don't see it. Why is that? Well, maybe it's personal preference. Maybe it's that, that anomaly of, I think everybody wants it to be this way. Now, one thing to keep in mind, Llewellyn, and for everyone listening, the building codes are minimum standards. The absolute minimum way you can build a house for not only the house's longevity, but the safety of the person inside of it. So whether it is that style of a house in Florida or New Mexico or New England, the basic components of the house do stay the same. You still need a floor. I remember the great Pete Seeger when I was a young man hearing him in a concert saying, if you want to change the floor of your kitchen, you can only do it one board at a time. Somehow I remembered that. And 
And I take it not only from the philosophical viewpoint, but from the literal viewpoint. If you want to change the floor in your kitchen, you can't just rip it all out and start again. It's a process. It involves many persons. Um, going back to our central theme here, how can we get more respect for people who work with their hands um, so that they can participate and have some of the benefits that are denied them, like solid employment, reliable pensions, retirement, things that they would get if they were in large or even medium-sized companies, which they don't get the way they're employed now as hourly paid. Uh, they're all right if they're in unions, but very few are in unions anymore. And they're not only at the mercy of the economy and of their companies, but they're also at the mercy of their own ages. Uh, I would imagine it would be a lot harder for you to be a working electrician today than it was uh, 30 years ago when you yep. had to bend your body into all sorts of shapes and places to do things. Um, and I've seen a lot of workmen where basically age defeated them. They couldn't do what they used to do. It happened to my father. Um, what are we going to do? I mean, it's fine, I think, to retire at 70 if you're an office worker, but it's a lot rougher if you're a, a manual worker or um, if you work with your hands in some way. You're right. A manual worker by that age where the office worker is retiring with a pension, the manual worker physically can't do it anymore. They can't climb the ladder. They can't carry things. They never had a pension. They never had a retirement plan. 401k is very foreign to most tradespeople. They don't know what that means. Nobody ever said save money. I think maybe the answer, Llewellyn, is to let's keep the conversation going. Let's provide those persons who do provide manual labor a way to elevate their stature. Um, and this is, it's not all over the world. I know in some countries, a friend of mine from Australia, he said when he left school and told his parents he was going to be a carpenter, they praised him. They said, that's wonderful, son. Besides, somebody will pay, else will pay for your education, but you're going to give value to everything you do. We need to turn that conversation, especially in the U.S. And I think it starts with first acknowledging, looking around your house and thinking, wow, how many people? In fact, the average home has 300 thousand different pieces of material that come together in what could be considered 3,000 major components or systems. And anybody that thinks a worker isn't as smart as someone else, when they can take those, all those pieces, all those systems, and put it together in a very short time to a home that we just take for granted, I think we need to turn around and look at the door and say, thank you, carpenter. We need to look at the wall and say, Thank you, painter. And maybe we need to reach out and literally thank those people. Eric, thank you for coming on the broadcast. Fascinating discussion. Thank you so very much. That is our show for today. Respect your hands, respect the hands of the people who built your house, and do respect your life. Take it easy, but wear your mask. This pandemic will pass and we will all go back to work. Cheers. Our program, White House Chronicle, is on offer as a podcast for you to enjoy. 
full shows on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and all major audio platforms. Subscribe and take us with you in your pocket.